You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Let us say together Psalm 139. Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You trace my journeys and my resting places and are acquainted with all my ways. Indeed, there is not a word on my lips, but you, O Lord, know it altogether. You press upon me behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain to it. Where can I go then from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I climb up to heaven, you are there. If I make the grave my bed, you are there also. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, Even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, and the light around me turn to night. Darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light to you are both alike. Search me out, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my restless thoughts. Look well whether there be any wickedness in me, and lead me in the way that is everlasting. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. A reading from the book of Genesis. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring, and your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel. 
The word of the Lord. A reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The word of the Lord. Well, as you may have noticed, the readings aren't quite where we're supposed to be today. They're a little different than what is in the lectionary. I wanted to this morning to expound a little bit on um, some of the axioms that I introduced to the vestry a few months ago. Some of you may remember these, the seven axioms. And what these seven axioms are is uh, uh, seven ways that, seven, seven base assumptions that God has about the world, seven base assumptions that the apostles and Jesus had about the world and the way they moved in them. These are seven axioms that I've been learning to live in within the last year, year and a half with uh, a group called Gravity Leadership. These are the base things that they begin with. And axioms, if you're not familiar with the term, is a self-evident or necessary truth. It's a proposition that's so evident that we sometimes forget about it. It's so basic, we, we operate as if we, we, they're, they're just too simple for us to even acknowledge sometimes. Like, the whole is greater than the part. Or a thing cannot at the same time both be and not be. So they're a little bit more than cliches. Cliches trivialize the truth, right? 
axioms are the base assumption of that truth. So it's a base rule sometimes from which other knowledge is, is, is built. It's something on top of which a system is constructed that is, is, it requires these seven base, an axiom for which they can be understood. In this case, what we see is that these seven axioms are, are kind of like the way Jesus viewed the world. So if we were to pick up Jesus' glasses and put them on, these would be the seven basic things that undergird the way he engaged with people the way he spoke about God, the way he went about his life. And what we see also in the readings this morning um, that Jacob was met with some of this first axiom and that the apostles, Peter in, in, in the Gospels was, in, in Acts was met with some of these and, and they viewed the world in the same way. But what is it all about? I haven't yet introduced it to you, so you're gonna have to hang on just a little bit, but here's what, it, what we're getting at this morning and what we hear a little bit of in the first reading. How do I follow a God that I can't see and sometimes seems so distant? How do I follow a God that seems so distant? And many times we construct elaborate ways that we believe that we must follow this God of, of doing grand things, building big things, or, or whatever it may be. And in fact, what I believe is that humans have an innate bend towards this. We understand at a core level that God is wholly other, that God is transcendent, that God is beyond us. He's something holy and grand, and yes, that's true. What, what I see is that human nature hears and understands this at a core level. This is why every religion from, from the earliest times built temples on high places, up on mountains. And temples, by their nature, when you walk in, they draw your eyes upwards because God is holy and he's other. We do the same thing with our cathedrals. Cathedrals are this beautiful, incredible structures that draw our eyes up to God's transcendent nature. So about five years ago, I had the pleasure of going and spending some time in Rome and, and St. Peter's Cathedral, just unbelievable. I've had the privilege of being able to travel some and stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and see some of the great wonders of our world. But when I walked into St. Peter's Cathedral, and saw the story of the gospel around me in such magnificent sights and looked above the high altar with, with the, the Holy Spirit in the image of a dove coming forward with gold beams shooting out from God was holy and big and other. We need sacred places in order to conceive of something sacred. And yet, Sometimes we expound that one aspect of God into the only aspect of God. And God is always holy and other and removed. And we believe that we have to do things, dramatic things, to get to him. Or he seems distant and removed from our everyday mundane lives. So we have to build temples and, and, and cathedrals. But we also have to tear them down in our own hearts. Just as, Matt, as Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, our Gospel uh, this season, this year, Matthew 24, 2, when the disciples, he and the, the apostles were walking around and the, they pointed to the temple and said, look at these great buildings. And Jesus says, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And in Matthew 27, at the crucifixion of Jesus in the Holy of Holies in the temple, the place that separated the most holy place in the whole world where heaven met earth from the rest of it, 
the curtain that separated that was torn in two. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. And then in Matthew 28, just before Jesus ascends, he says this, And behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. You see, when we only understand God as being removed and separate and something other than our everyday life, we end up with little cliches like this. We end up with a, a worldview of the man upstairs, right? Garth Brooks, anybody, right? Some, I'm not going to sing it. I, I thought about it, but you don't want me to do that. The man upstairs, right? It's this basic assumption of the world that, that the world is split and it's like a two-story building. We're down here on the base level, and there's a second story, we think, but there's no stairs to get up there, right? So God lives on that second story without stairs, and every once in a while, we might hear a little racket upstairs and be like, oh, see, there's somebody up there. And this leads to Christians running around, and the, the whole... The whole, the whole, their whole Christian life is spent trying to prove the existence of a second story. There's something up there. We don't know much about it, but every once in a while we hear it and we strive for these proofs. This is how many of us understand God in our world. Or maybe it's, it's the theological concepts. We want to understand it more, so we use big words like omnipresence, right? God is omnipotent. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And what this does is relegate this truth that we're about to hear to a theological concept. It creates a distinction between the sacred and the secular. It's kind of like this. You ever, you ever uh, uh, especially now that we're going back out to restaurants a little bit, and you might show up and see a, a young couple there that they finally got a babysitter that night, and they're sitting there at dinner. They're one night out, their date night. And what are they doing? They're looking at their phones on, on social, social media, scrolling while a real life living, breathing person is right next to them. Omnipresent, that, that their spouse is present and yet they are somewhere else and not seeing what is right under their nose. The Genesis reading this morning, Jacob, where he has this incredible dream in this place where a temple would someday be built. And he says this, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. Our first axiom, on which all seven others are built, which is the base assumption that we hear the apostles and the prophets and Jacob and Jesus all living their life as if. God is always present and at work. God is always present and at work. And just like a true axiom, this is something that we're going to say, duh, yeah, of course, we're going to nod our head in agreement and yet live in a different reality. Live in a reality as if there was a man upstairs or a, a God that's omnipresent, right? But God is always present and at work. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break this axiom up into two parts. We're going to look at it in two separate sections. The first one is God is always present. Here are a few ways that we misunderstand this and live as if he isn't. Ready? God is always present. We use adages like this. God showed up. God showed up. How have you used this? You can yell at me. To pull your, you know, leave your mask on, the few of you that are here. How have we used God, is, God showed up? Anything come to mind? No, 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 no. Maybe, the, maybe this is just the circles I run in then when I hear this. Maybe we use this when uh, someone goes into the hospital, 
or has a, a, an illness and then they're healed and, and, or they, they get better and we're like, God showed up in this moment. Right? God showed up. God showed up. Or maybe we go to a, 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 an incredible service or we experience God in a worship service or at a revival or whatever it may be, a conference, and we say, God showed up. Or we read a, a book that opens our eyes to the transcendent nature of God. Or we visit someplace like St. Peter's. God showed up. This is, this is imagining the world as if we have to do something to get God to show up in our everyday life. We have to execute the liturgy a particular way every time. If we miss it or mess it up, oh, maybe God's not going to show up. God showed up denies the reality that God is present and at work. Listen to this. G.K. Chesterton said, uh, uh, it was reported this way. He was standing on a London street corner when he was approached by a newspaper reporter. The reporter said, Sir, I understand that you recently became a Christian. May I ask you a question? Certainly, replied Chesterton. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? Chesterton turned and looked at the reporter squarely in the eye and said, He is. It's this kind of base assumption, uh, understanding that the whole world is filled with God's presence and that he is always at work. Here's the other way we miss this first part. I just don't feel like God is present. I just don't feel like God is present, as if that means he isn't. When I encounter hardship or struggles in life, an illness, a death, the, the struggle of everyday work, uh, a family conflict of, of, of whatever it may be. When I experience hardship in life is when I'm often prone to believe that God isn't present. Or we do it this way. Everything happens for a reason. That's not the same thing as saying God is always present and at work. Saying and believing things always happen for a reason is to, to, to believe that these hardships come at the hand of God. And while everything may not happen for a reason, God is still always present and at work in the circumstances. Let me put it this way, uh, say it this way. Sometimes the storms in our life are there to reveal what's in our hearts. The and though everything may not happen for a reason, God is there willing and able to transform all things for the good of those who love him, we understand. They reveal the storms that are in our hearts. Faith is not seeking a miraculous escape from our circumstances, but is a dependent trust through our circumstances. So the way that Jesus came to the disciples in the boat, walking on the water in the storm, and Peter steps out. Jesus' presence wasn't in banishing the hard things, but in coming to us in the storms and revealing that was which in the heart of the disciples, the fear. How about this one? God is always at work. God is always at work. God is always present. We just kind of looked at a few things that we mis how we misunderstand that. God is always at work. We miss this one sometimes when we believe that the extraordinary is more important than the mundane. That God only works in extraordinary moments when, when he shows up in a big way or does something that is clearly something of a move of God. And we deny the mundane interactions we have. Our everyday work. Our everyday going about our life. But what we understand is that our God is a God of incarnation. 
What we see in the presence of Jesus is that the transcendent, the holy, the other took on that is what is most mundane and unextraordinary, our flesh. And he came near. We see that in the incarnation, and that is extrapolated to all aspects of creation. We see that in the sacraments that we get to participate in here occasionally. Maybe someday we'll get some sacraments again. And what we understand is that in the very plain, everyday bread and wine, that in some miraculous way, the transcendent, holy, other God has come present in a real and tangible way. The mundane is as important as the extraordinary. And when we understand that, then we can understand and see that the primary context for our discipleship is our everyday lives. We don't believe sometimes, though, that God's presence is practical to the everyday struggles and things that we have going on. Like my anxiety or my fear or my my conflict is something that I have to figure out and fix before I can meet with God. And yet God is there and present and work in the anxiety and the struggles and fear. So how do we live as if this is true? It would be one thing for us to just replace one cliche with another and go on saying God is always present and at work and not living in a way that our hearts look for God in our everyday experiences. The most important way is this, and this is what I'm going to finish with and, and talk about a, a way to, to understand and to live as if this is true, is we stop trying to get God to show up in our actions, in our, in our struggles, in our interactions, and instead... We learn to wake up to the presence of God in our everyday mundane lives. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors, said it this way, the assumption of spirituality is that God is always doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to it and participate in it and take delight in it. Here's how we do this. In Mark 1.15, Jesus said, he burst on the scene saying this, the time has come for the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. In the Greek, we have two words for time. We have the word chronos, which is like the chronological ordering of times where we get our word chronological. It's like dinner is at six o'clock or at 9.30, I'm going to do this. Or in October, we're going to do this. It's the chronological ordering of time. Jesus doesn't use that word here. He uses the word kairos. Kairos. This is one understanding of what the word kairos means in the understanding of time. It's an occasion or opportunity that's pregnant with possibility. It's a possibility of which we have to wake up to the presence of. It's a time that is present with possibility, a word we use to name a doorway into perceiving the activity of God around us. Remember, God is always present at work in the mundane just as much as the extraordinary. So how do we do this? You see, Kairos opportunities, Kairos opportunities happen in our everyday life all the time. And I like to talk of it as, as noticing a Kairos moment. What these are, these are little sonar pings from our soul. You understand what a sonar ping is, right? It's reaching out, looking for something, and ting, it hits on just a little beat, just a little blurb, just a little something, just a little bit of anxiety, just a little bit of when this person texts or calls my phone, I get a little anxious or frustrated, 
or at work when this same thing happens over and over and over again, it's like, ah, oh, it's something, right? Or for me, it's like something is going on and I have to, I feel like I need to fix or control this circumstance or this situation. Bing, Kairos moment. Sonar ping of the soul. So what we do when we experience these kind of, and it's often, often bad things like anxiety or fear or frustration, but they can also be good things, right? That I felt whole and complete in this moment. Sonar ping, Kairos moment. Here I felt fulfilled and as if this was doing something that was, that was incredible. Sonar moment, sonar ping, Kairos moment. We have to learn to train our awareness and perception of God's activity. And sometimes that's as simple as noticing the sonar pings that are going off in our soul. Kairos moments. And participate right there. So here's how we embody this truth. Here's how we embody God being always present and at work. And it's something that you may be familiar with, you probably heard of. It, it's practicing something as simple as a daily examine. It's reviewing our day with God. It's taking times and listening for moments of consolation and desolation. Just taking a few minutes and reviewing the day, reviewing the week, and, and paying attention. Where did I feel anxious? Where did I feel frustrated? Where did I feel fearful? Where did I feel alive? Where did I feel like as if my life had meaning? Where were my Kairos moments? What were the sonar pings that went on in my soul? And it's taking time to merely be compassionately curious about what God is present and at work in in that situation. It's taking time. And this is the hardest thing for me personally to do is because I'm one who always feels like I have to be doing something. It's just naturally me. I don't even think about it. So I'm doing, I'm, 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 I'm fixing things. I'm going around and controlling this circumstance or this place in my life. So if, I, if a sonar ping goes off in my soul and I experience a Kairos moment, I'm, I'm in action. I'm figuring out a way to, to manage this thing and to fix it. And that's where we, we fight or we flee or we fix our Kairos moments. And that is not being present to God in the sonar pings of our life. All we have to do is notice to stop and awaken ourselves to the presence of God in the, 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 the kairos moments of our soul. To not fight or fix them, but to be present with God through them. And here's what really grieves me most, is that I know that we'll talk about these things. We'll talk about here in just the last thing I have this morning is the two ways we do a daily exam. And, and I'll lay this out, and we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about God always being present at work. And what grieves me is that I know many of us will not do this. We'll go through our life, and we'll hear this talked about, and we'll relegate God still yet to a man upstairs and not even take the effort to attempt to awaken ourselves to what he is already doing in our life. And it's something as simple as taking a few moments at the end or the beginning of our day and just trying to be present with God, just trying to wake up to what he is doing around us. So here's what we do in the examine. Take two minutes. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to practice that this morning. We're going to take two minutes and we're going to listen for two things in this two minutes. First of which is moments of consolation, moments where I felt God's joy or peace or presence. And the second thing is we're going to listen for moments of desolation. Moments where I, I, I felt God's absence or anxiety or fear or unforgiveness. And we're just going to review our week. If we can't do that here in church during moments of silence, where can we do that? 
Our world is so loud sometimes. Let this be a place of peace and where we can do this. So this morning, we're going to take two minutes. We're going to split it in two sections. The first is, is moments of consolation. I'm going to pray shortly, and we're going to listen for God in the moments of consolation for our week, and then we'll take one minute for desolation. So let's take a moment and pray. Father God, we thank you so much for being God that is, that is present in a work. That while you're holy and transcendent and other, we know that you've come present in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And that you promise the presence of your Holy Spirit, Lord. We ask that as we, we reflect on these, that you would bring things to our mind of where we're, we're, we're ignoring the sonar pings of our soul, Lord. And compassionately take us into those places. One minute, moments, consolation. Now, Lord, we ask that you'd bring to mind the moments of desolation we've had through the week. Places where I felt your, your absence or anxiety or fear or unforgiveness. Amen.